Welcome to the What's What Weekly Wrap-Up. Today's show focuses exclusively on this week's features from the WFUV Newsroom. I'm David Escobar. And I'm Maya Sargent. And here are this week's feature stories. Last week, the Supreme Court decided that race-conscious admissions programs at Harvard and the University of North Carolina are unconstitutional. That practice is more commonly known as affirmative action, which has become a cornerstone of the admissions process in higher education. So this week, WFUV's Jay Doughty spoke with Progressive Policy Institute scholar Richard Kalenberg from Georgetown's School of Public Policy to learn more. So, Mr. Kalenberg, do you think it's fair to say that this decision is expected to lead to a less diverse student body at elite institutions? I don't think so in the long term, at least. Uh, in the short term, I think that's right, that when, when states have banned affirmative action at public universities, which they started doing in the 1990s, there was an initial drop in Black and Hispanic enrollment. But as those universities were able to implement new systems of admissions that uh, in some cases got rid of unfair preferences for wealthy families, like the legacy preferences and the preferences for children of faculty. And as they began to give a bigger boost to economically disadvantaged students of all races, you saw the Black and Hispanic numbers go back up. And so uh, it it may take a little bit of time, but in the long term, I think we will have more diverse universities in the sense that they will be both racially and economically diverse as opposed to just racially diverse. And in a rather scathing critique, Chief Justice John Roberts characterized Harvard's and UNC's admissions process as elusive, stating their inclusion of race perpetuates stereotypes and is in conflict with the values of the Constitution. On the other hand, Justice Sotomayor emphasized in her dissent that true equality cannot be achieved through race blindness. So with these perspectives in mind, can you shed some light on the political philosophy that underlies this decision? Yeah, so there's there's a stark contrast in, in the views. And so that's why I think it's so important uh, that universities not just give up on diversity, but instead find new paths to diversity that avoid the the problems that Justice Roberts sees with using race specifically, but also honors uh, Justice Sotomayor's important point that we need to have diverse classes. And in particular, I recommend the use of certain economic indicators that reflect our nation's history of racial oppression and racial discrimination. So two I'll mention quickly. One is wealth, uh, which is your net worth. There's an income gap in America between black and white people, but there's a huge wealth gap. And that's because uh, wealth is handed down from generation to generation. And it, uh, you know, redlining, slavery, segregation, all contribute to the wealth gap. So if you give a break to low wealth students, then you're going to create economic and racial diversity. And the other thing quickly is uh, what sort of neighborhood uh, a student grows up in. So it turns out that because of discrimination in the housing market, uh, middle-class, middle-income Black people tend to live in neighborhoods with higher poverty rates than low-income white people. And so if you count the neighborhood situation uh, and wealth, alongside of things like income and education level of the parents, that, that's, a, that's a path to creating genuine economic and racial diversity. Would you argue that the approach you just outlined is the best way to assess race and merit in unison? Or does the college admissions process vary from school to school? 
the, the, there's going to be a certain amount of discretion in any admissions process. But to the extent that universities can make clear, we want students who've overcome obstacles to apply and to talk about how their academic record should be thought of in the context of what hurdles they've had to overcome in life, then I think we can create a fair, more meritocratic system that that actually honors you know, how far a student has come, not just where they, they ended up. That was WFUV's Jay Doughty talking to Richard Kalenberg about affirmative action. This month, the WFUV newsroom is highlighting advocacy groups trying to build a better New York. Lately, New York has experienced an influx of migrants, and some of the most vulnerable people within that population are LGBTQ plus and HIV-positive migrants. This week, I sat down with Marcus Urea, a pro bono coordinator and policy assistant with immigration equality, to discuss the challenges queer migrants face in their journeys and the work his organization is doing to change it. Can you just talk to me about the work that y'all are doing at Immigration Equality? Immigration Equality, we work specifically with individuals who have faced persecution in their home country as a result of their gender identity or sexual orientation, uh, or because they're living with HIV. So specifically, Immigration Equality, we we have... uh, several different programs, but our more specific uh, uh, services are towards asylum seekers, are targeted for asylum seekers in the United States through a legal organization. So we find attorneys that can represent individuals in their immigration case, and we mentor those attorneys throughout the entire asylum process. And then uh, once granted asylum, uh, individuals have an opportunity to pursue uh, all kinds of different opportunities here in the U.S. and remain, of course, uh, legally and have access to resources and benefits that are available to to residents and citizens of the country. The U.S. government and U.S. law actually allows for individuals based on their LGBTQ status or their status as someone living with HIV to be able to seek asylum in the U.S. And there's legal protections around that. Many people are fleeing situations that are unimaginable, face torture. The law is very clear on this, and so individuals are protected, and, and the U.S. government in that sense has has been able to to recognize that and, and honor that. Talk to me about the end of Title 42 in this new phase of U.S. border policy that's kind of made it difficult to seek asylum. What dangers might migrants face at the southern border? This is a, a challenge, I think, for LGBTQ immigrants, in particular LGBTQ migrants, because Migrants who are queer or queer identifying are some of the most vulnerable, uh, particularly throughout the migrant process. They face extortion throughout uh, their journeys very often. And while they're waiting at the U.S.-Mexico border, and it's a very complicated issue, but there are there, there is a lack of safety measures for individuals who are waiting at the U.S.-Mexico border. And we see higher rates of violence towards LGBTQ individuals who are then oftentimes returned to a country that is a country that has made a lot of progress in terms of LGBTQ rights, but continues to uh, be unsuccessful in protecting even its own LGBTQ population, let alone migrants who are who are arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border. I mean, even for people that make it to the U.S., I can only imagine how much harder that battle gets, you know, like, can you just walk me through some of the challenges that migrants might face when they make it past the border? I think it's 
worth noting and recognizing the, the asylum process itself and how cumbersome it can be. Uh, so, so you know, you've made it to the U.S. Now what? There are limits. So you, you are only permitted one year from the date of arrival. So uh, once you've arrived in the U.S., if you don't submit an asylum application within one year, you know, you're, you're out of luck. The asylum case will not even be heard. Certainly, I want to highlight that while you're in that process, uh, access to benefits that, that can help you kind of get established in the U.S. are very limited as well and, and, and the hardest at that point in time. So access that you, while you're waiting for an asylum claim, you don't have access to any sort of food benefits. You can't apply for food stamps. You can't apply for any health care benefits. And that's why your case is pending. What's one thing you wish the general public knew about the people like the clients you serve at Immigration Equality? I had a client at one point in time who who made it to the U.S. who had never been out in his home country, and who had been in a country that was that was you know very homophobic. That should his family have found out, surely they 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 would have killed him. He arrived through the U.S. Mexico border. He was held in detention for a period of months before eventually being released. And uh, there was a point in time eventually where where he did win asylum. When he went to his first Pride event, he had told me that he, just, he couldn't believe like what, what his eyes were seeing. Like he couldn't believe that he could be himself, that he could be open. The one thing that I wish people would take away is, is the understanding that it's part of the human experience, the human spirit, to want to live an authentic life, to want to live as yourself. What individuals want, what people want, what people need is to be able to live as themselves, to live authentically to be able to love, to be able to, uh, you know, have a normal life. That was my co-host David Escobar speaking with Marcos Urrea, a pro bono coordinator and policy assistant with Immigration Equality. And that's it from us. But you can check out the What's What weekly wrap-up every Friday for more features exclusively from the WFUV newsroom. And make sure to check out the WFUV What's What daily podcast. It explores current events, culture, news, and hot topic issues surrounding the New York metropolitan area. And it includes features and interviews just like the ones you heard today, exclusively from FUV. You can catch new episodes every weekday at 3, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, or find out more at WFUVnews.org. I'm Maya Sargent. And I'm David Escobar. And that's What's What.